Good morning. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Glad that you could be with us here in the sanctuary and as well across the street in the chapel and as well online. Honored that you would worship with us this morning for Easter and uh, it's good to be home after some time away. Please join me. We'll pray for a moment and then look at the scripture this morning as we celebrate Easter. Father, we'd like to pause and thank you that in a world filled with confusion and darkness and uncertainty and uh, often fear and violence, that uh, beyond the veil, there is something literally infinitely better. And I pray that our eyes would see that today, that our hearts would respond to that invitation today, that you would bring us into eternal life and shape us to be people of hope in our world. We'll thank you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by uh, articulating a couple of authors' musings on the temporality of life, because we are celebrating this morning eternal life. Edna St. Vincent Millay, a great poet, uh, wrote a poem entitled Dirge Without Music, and I'll just read two uh, scores of it. This is what she says. I'm not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts into the hard ground. So it is, so it will be. So it's always been, time out of mind, into the darkness they go. The wise and the lovely, crowned with lilies and laurel they go, but I am not resigned. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave, gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind, quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave, they all go, I know, but I do not approve. I'm not resigned. And then, maybe five decades later, Pulitzer Prize winner Ernest Becker wrote a classic book in 1974, Denial of Death, the basic thesis of which is that our entire civilization, the whole construct, is designed to live in the denial of death. Like we're trying to avoid the thought that someday we will die. And now, in the wake of 1974, uh, increased secularism has destroyed any possibility of reality beyond the grave, and science destroys the possibility of real meaning in time precisely because of the certainty that we will die. And so here you have, separated by five or six decades, two authors both saying the same thing. We will die, and I hate it, right? Uh, and, and now in our culture, postmodern people, I think embracing both of those are trying to live into the tension of it. And so we've developed now what's called an experience economy whereby we say to one another, the only thing we know for certain is what we experience now. We don't know life beyond the grave, so let's now carpe diem, go for the gusto, drink deeply from the well that is today's life. And so the experience economy is about accumulating just that experiences. I will travel. I will eat out. I will become a foodie. I will become a sports junkie. I will buy season tickets. I will ski. I will hike. I will paraglide. I will live because I will die. <laughs> Interesting. The problem with this whole paradigm is the vast expectations that we place on experiences can never be met. Uh, we can't find real life for the ages, the life for which we're created, in experience alone. None of them satisfy, actually. We go, and we do our thing, and then it ends, and then the emptiness is there again. Our work can never fill our cup completely. Our health can't fill our cup completely. Our spouse can't be that intellectually stimulating, perfectly healthy, hot in bed person we want them to be to make our lives full. Not all the time, at the least, right? 
And so the irony is this, we shut the door off to the possibility of eternity, and then we end up overvaluing this present life and putting all our eggs, so to speak, in the present life basket, and the result is the highest form of dissatisfaction. And many of you are too young to remember the classic movie Annie Hall, Woody Allen movie, but Woody Allen actually gives Diane Keaton a copy of Becker's Denial of Death in that movie, and he says to her, you need to read this so you can understand why everyone in the world is either horrible or miserable. <laughs> right. Because here's the problem. Look for eternal life, or what the Bible calls life for the ages in this life, and you will never be satisfied. Make experience in this life everything, and you will not be satisfied. Or resign yourself to the reality that this is all there is, and live a, a, a life of nihilistic despair and depression. So either never be satisfied or be perpetually depressed. Those are your choices. Happy Easter. <laughs> and actually, happy Easter. Because here's the point. There is a third way. Psalm 23, 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> Luke 23, 39 to 43, which we just read, these two combine to offer us a third way, and in this third way we are offered three realities. I love it when that happens. <laughs> the first reality, death is inevitable. The second, eternal life is available. The third reality, new life starts today. Let's look at all three together briefly this morning. Reality number one, death is inevitable. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33, this is what we read uh, regarding the crucifixion narrative. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, and he was there with two other men, both criminals. We don't know anything about the other two men. We don't know their crimes. We don't know their ages. We only know that at the end of this particular day, all three are dead, and this is symbolic because here's the deal. Everyone dies. So uh, there you have it. It's actually liberating to embrace the reality that death is inevitable. And the sooner we come to embrace this reality, the sooner we begin to enjoy every day today as a, as a gift, the gift that life is. And, and, and so this is uh, what we must wrestle with at the outset. No matter what we do in our lives, we will die. And all of us who have lived a little while have said goodbye to far too many people far too soon. When I was 16, a buddy of mine in marching band was killed by a drunk driver. He was 16 too. I have two friends killed in their 20s in climbing accidents, a third killed in an avalanche, a friend who died of cancer at 40, my sister died of a heart attack at 42, my dad died of pneumonia at 53, one of my best friends was killed in a paragliding accident at 54. I just came back from Switzerland. The principal of the Bible school in Switzerland is 81. <laughs> and skiing and snowshoeing and cross-country skiing and hiking every day. But he knows he'll die. We have to embrace that because the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we begin to ask the right questions. That's why Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says, far better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because that is your end, Right? So we're going to learn to ask the right questions. And then when we ask the right questions, we come to the same conclusion as one of the two thieves on the cross, or we're invited to come to that conclusion. So we come to this second reality. Reality number one, death is inevitable. Reality number two, eternal life is available. This is what we see in the narrative that was read this morning in uh, Luke uh, chapter 23. And so I'll turn there and just observe that there are two different thieves 
who are reacting to their plight in two dramatically different fashions, right? An amazing story because we see these different responses to the reality of death. The first thief challenges Jesus to prove his role as the Christ or the Savior or the anointed one. So this man is, in other words, challenging Jesus' authority and identity. And this is what he's saying. Hey, prove yourself by getting me out of this mess, right? If you're really God, you can fix this. So fix it. And so what he's really doing, if we, if we kind of peel it back a little bit, is he's blaming God for the mess that he's in. He's blaming God for the mess of the world. And when we blame God for the messes of the world, for the cancer, for the human trafficking, for the wars, the corruption, we are playing a vast game of denial because here's what we're doing. We're washing our hands of our role in the broken world. And I'll just articulate that this is the height of deception. Are we all in the room, all of us victimized at various times? Yes, every one of us has a story, no doubt. But here's the deal. Like the thief hanging on the cross, we may have been victimized. We are also each of us in our own ways perpetrators because we carry the sins of the fathers into our own story. And so we fail to love and we fail to be just and we fail to serve and we fail to work and we fail to live the life for which we're created. So we've fallen short of that life for which we're made. We too then are part of the problem. And not, but this thief isn't. In his mind, it's all fixed by, by Jesus just fixing the situation, and this is the height of deception, because it puts us right back into Becker's denial of death. At the core, we blame God for the mess of the world and for our messes, and people with this view are bitter, and, and they live very fragile lives. Because they need a life void of suffering, and who gets that? No one. <laughs> so that's the first thief. But also there's the second thief, still under the rubric of this, this truth, eternal life is available. The second guy responds in a way that reveals truth. How? Number one, he believes in his need. He sees himself as guilty. So uh, he responds to the first thief, and uh, he says to him, don't you fear God since you're under the same sense of condemnation? Indeed, we're suffering justly receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Interesting. Two things regarding this guy. First of all, he believes in his need. In other words, he sees himself as guilty. He says, this is what he says. We're suffering justly. We're receiving what we deserve. And what we find in this guy is vital if we're to escape the denial of death problem that Becker articulates. Because when we see the distance between my life as it is and the, and, and the life that I know it ought to be, when I see this dissonance, this is who I am, but this is who I could be, it's this dissonance that causes me to look to Christ to give me what Christ alone can give. Many look to Christ for escape from suffering or for guidance or for bread. This man looks to Christ for mercy. Do you understand? And it's looking to Christ for mercy that is at the, it's, this is at the core of the gospel. I have a need, I'm guilty, I can't meet my need. Jesus, remember me. Wow. I, I love that. So first of all, this guy believes in his need. And all of us would do well to believe in our needs. And then second, he, this guy believes in Jesus' power. Because when he says this, he says it this way, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's, he's dying on a cross. He says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. This is ripe with faith because this tells us 
that he believes, this thief believes, death is not the end of the story. He, remember me, when you come into your kingdom, he believes that Jesus has a kingdom. He believes that Jesus will conquer death. He believes that Jesus has an eternal kingdom of beauty and justice and peace and hospitality and laughter and celebration and hope. Do you believe this? It's, it's a crux question, certainly worth asking, because this is the good news. This is the good news right here, that there's more than this life and that the more that awaits us is a life that is wholly other than the life we're living now, and we're living the life we're living now because we fall short. That's it. Better kingdom, life after death. And very interesting, we don't know anything about this thief. We don't know how he came to believe these things. We just know that he believed. That's all we know. And so can we believe these things? Why? Because we know from this thief that faith doesn't require a massive seminary education. You don't need to go to Bible school. You don't need to go to Sunday school. <laughs> he articulates the gospel dying on a cross. He doesn't have answers to all the questions. There are ethical questions about which we disagree regarding politics, regarding sexuality, regarding economics, regarding justice. But though we don't have all the answers to all the questions, though we don't know why there's so much suffering in the world, we know this. The world can be better than it is. We're part of the problem. Jesus, help me. <laughs> Remember me. So he believes in Jesus' power. And, and he believes in Jesus' power for him. He doesn't just acknowledge the reality of a better kingdom and life beyond death. He asks Jesus to remember him. And, 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 and so this is this, this is this eternity thing, and this is very personal. This is this thief with Jesus, one-on-one, -on -one, so to speak. And this is all through the Bible. The woman at the well, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. The woman caught in adultery, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, 14 days, right? One-on-one -on -one with Jesus. The man born blind, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. The leper, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Peter after the resurrection, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Yeah, this is life. There's a moment for each of us in the room alone to call out to Jesus and say this, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Remember me in my guilt because I need innocence. Remember me in my lust because I need purity. Remember me in my despair because I need hope. Remember me in my sorrow because I need joy. Remember me because of my mourning because I need laughter. Remember me. Yeah, that's the gospel. It's that simple. <laughs> Remember. And what happens then is kind of we're ushered into, by Jesus' response, this hope that the world is eternal. There have been marker moments in my life when God has spoken. They've happened at camp, happened at funerals, happened in church, happened in the wild, happened when driving alone. Moments where I see this dissonance between who I am and who I know I can be. Moments when I see a dissonance between the world as it is and the world of which I'm a part. And, this, and this, it's this simple. Remember me, Jesus, in my confusion. Remember me in my anxiety. Remember me in my fear. We need to learn to listen to the longings of our heart because those longings followed wholly will take us to Christ. And then the third reality is this. Jesus says the new life starts today. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Man, that's awesome. Here's the thief 
Uh, no chance to go through confirmation class. No chance to get baptized. No chance to articulate the Apostles' Creed. No chance for church membership. No chance to serve on a committee. No chance. And yet, what does Jesus say? This day with me. Why? Because, listen, your standing with God was never, ever, ever predicated on your performance. We live in a pay-to-play world. And to be blunt, often we treat each other in the same pay-to-play manner. <laughs> and then Jesus comes along and responds to this thief. And in his response to this thief, he's saying something profound to all of us in the room. He's saying, look, all we need to do is cry out very simply, remember me in my, and then you fill in the blank with whatever. That's it. That's the gospel right there. Yeah. Without any proof of anything other than a belief on this man's part that he was broken and a belief that Jesus was in some way a solution. That's it. That's the gospel. And what's available for us then? Life for the ages. You know what that means? That means I'm able to live now through the lens of eternity, a kingdom perspective. Man, that fills me with hope. And people who live through the lens of eternal perspective and allow the future reign of God to break into our lives in the present moment, boy, we, those people live differently. The phrase I use is this, they shoot the moon. They're not, they're not uh, addicted to the experience economy because they're living in God's kingdom, and it's a far better story. I was uh, on holiday and teaching over in Europe, and my wife and I made a pilgrimage to uh, a plateau in France called La Chambon. Uh, and this is a, a, a place in 1942 through 1945, where somewhere between three and 5,000 Jews were sheltered and then uh, given passage uh, to Switzerland and saved. Three to 5,000. So we went to the museum there, and it's a remarkable experience for us. We kinda, I love to do these pilgrimages to see how people have lived faithfully. There was a pastor, Andre Trockma. He, he taught the high school students uh, that there's a better kingdom, and that in God's kingdom, uh, every, everyone is made in the image of God, whether they're a Christian or not. And then uh, the news was coming out of uh, Paris, making its way to this high Alpine plateau, uh, about how the Jews were disappearing. And uh, they began sheltering Jews uh, under the auspices of this and other churches, hiding three to 5,000 over the course of uh, three or four years. And a German official had come to the village... And the high school students, the high school students, the kids, they said, hey, uh, we want to give a gift to uh, this German official. And, of course, German officials are like, yeah, I want a gift. So we were, we were here in this little town, and we saw the bandstand where this whole scene unfolded. German official comes, some pomp, some ceremony, a little band over there. Uh, and then the, the students stand up. And they say, here, Mr. So-and-so, uh, there's a letter. This is your gift. We want, can we read it out loud? And this is what they say. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, we know what the Germans are doing uh, to the Jewish men in Paris, how they're disappearing. We know that wives are being separated from their husbands and children from their parents. We know what's happening to the women. We know what's happening to the children. And we want you to know, Mr. German official, that we, on this plateau, we believe that everyone, regardless of religion, is created in the image of God. And so we have two things to say to you, Mr. German official. There are Jews on this plateau. You will never find them. Happy birthday. 
man, I read the letter in the museum. And this was my response. I want to live that way. Do you understand? Shoot the moon. Why? Because this day, I'm with Jesus already in paradise. Eternal life has begun. Why? Because at some moment in brokenness, I said this to Jesus. Remember me. Remember me in my guilt. Remember me in my loneliness. Remember me in my despair, my failure, my sin, my mourning, my loss. Remember me. He does. That's the good news of Easter. And that remembrance propels us into life for the ages, the life for which we're created. So as we close right now, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to ask you to respond this way in our prayer books. This is the gospel right here. And some of you are like this. I'm, I already know Jesus. Yeah, but you still need to ask Jesus to remember you today. <laughs> because this is how we continue to live into our calling. Remember me and my loss, my hope. And for some of you, you never met Christ. Then come right in the book, remember me and my guilt, my fear, my questions, my confusion, my doubt, my frustration, and here's the good news. I say this on the authority of my own experience and the word of God. When I say to Jesus, remember me, he does. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we can come here now with a boatload of doubt. We don't know what happens to our friends in Asia who've never heard the gospel. We don't understand why there's so much suffering in the world. Or a boatload of failure, our hidden addictions, our shame. Or a boatload of anger. All we need to do is pray the simple prayer. Jesus, remember me in my loss, in my shame, in my fear, in my hidden addiction, remember me. And Jesus' word, your, your word to us <laughs> this day, life for the ages begins. May it be so in each of our hearts. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's worship together. Please utilize the prayer books asking Jesus to remember you on this beautiful Easter day.